It's good to see you all this morning and good to be gathered to worship our Lord together. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Malachi, chapter 2, starting at verse 17 and then three verse, uh, through chapter 3, verse 5. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Loved ones, this is the living and abiding Word of God. Let's give it all our attention now. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied Him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Prophecy there referring to the coming of Christ, the Lord's anointed, who will come and bring both uh, judgment and salvation as he comes to purify his people. So let's turn now to Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. This is our sermon text this morning. Luke 19, 28 through 48. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? They said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, 
saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's seek his blessing on us now. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to us, that you would make it a swift word passing from our ears to our minds to our hearts, bringing conviction, bringing correction, training us in righteousness, uh, probing out and finding our sin, finding our unbelief, cutting it off, and bringing healing as we, as we see Christ our Savior more clearly. We pray that you would do this. Glorify your Son now in, in this time that we sit under your word together and build us up in, in Christ. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's what's known traditionally as Palm Sunday today, uh, Sunday before Easter, of course. So I thought that since we were at a, a good stopping point in the Beatitudes, we finished the Beatitudes there uh, last week. We're, we'll get back to that in a couple weeks' time in the Sermon on the Mount. But I thought we'd take this, this Sunday and then next Sunday to just focus our attention for a couple weeks on our Lord in this last week of his life. I want to begin with a very basic question, and that is, what do you believe about Jesus? Just about everyone, I think, believes in Jesus in some kind of way. Um, but just about everyone also has a different idea about who Jesus is, what kind of a Christ he is. Some people believe in Jesus because they think he's a good example for them to follow. He lays out a good life. He says things like, uh, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, go the extra mile. And, and people, some people like that kind of a message, and so they, they take him as a teacher who upholds a, a, good, a good ethic for them. Some people believe in Jesus because they see him as a good social reformer, someone who stands up for the oppressed and, and, and defends the weak and the marginalized and speaks truth. But uh, is, that, is that what Jesus is? Is that what he's doing in the Gospels? And if so, in, in what way? Some people believe in Jesus sort of like a life insurance plan, Right? I get this. I got, I've got this tucked away for, for, for when, I, when I die, and then, then it'll, it'll come in handy. And uh, that's, that's what Christ is. He's, he's a Savior um, for the end, but not, not much else for my day to day. Some people believe in Jesus like he's a therapist. He's there to meet my needs. He's there to comfort, encourage me, listen to me, uh, pour out my heart, and um, uh, make me feel better about myself and about my circumstances. Um, but he has no real authority over me. Who is Christ? What do you believe about him? In Luke 19, where we are this morning, the tension that's been building between Jesus and the Jews throughout his ministry gets pushed almost to its breaking point 
It's almost to its climax. And the, 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 the issue at the heart of it all is, is will the Jews accept who Jesus really is? Like so many others, they have their own ideas about what the Christ should be. Are they going to accept what Jesus himself reveals about himself? About the kind of Christ, the kind of Messiah that he is. So, so many of them haven't yet. So, so many of the Jews hate him for his, uh, the way he challenges their pride and their position and their self-sufficiency and the way he makes demands on them. And uh, some others, some others aren't, aren't, don't hate him. They're caught up in the excitement. They're, they're, they're following him in a sense. Uh, they've seen his miracles, the incredible things he's done. Who, who else can do signs like this man does signs? And they're, they're excited and they watch him and they follow him. And, and perhaps some of them do think, Here's, here is our Christ, our King, come to throw off the, 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 the Roman government and give us political freedom and, and stability and... Uh, they might wonder, they might scratch their heads when Christ says things like, the Son of Man came to suffer and die. But they ignore that part, listen to the part they like. Uh, they see that Christ is the kind of Messiah that they're looking for. But then there are some. There are some who see. Perhaps they don't understand in all the fullness yet what, what Christ is, but they see. He's their Savior. He's their, their King and their Messiah uh, who's come to save them from their sins. So what about us? What do we believe about Christ? That is the question. That is the question here. Perhaps we've known Christ for a long time. Many of you I know have. Followed Christ, heard Christ, trusted in Christ for for years. But we still need to ask the question. You still need to think it over. Am I still listening to Christ and following Christ? Am I still trusting in Him? And do I still understand who He is for me? That's what the text here is aimed at, loved ones. We began a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is on a journey. He's been on this journey since Luke chapter 9. We're now in chapter 19. It's been a long trip with a lot of, a lot of things going on. Uh, it starts back on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He's there on the mountain. Moses and Elijah come down from heaven and meet with him. Jesus is, is revealed in, in some of his brilliant glory to the disciples and, uh, and, and there, on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Luke chapter 9, Moses and Elijah are, are talking with him, and they, they, they speak of his departure. They say this, Luke 9.31, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then, a few verses later, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to suffer and die, and then he sets his sights on Jerusalem. So from Luke 9 all the way to 19, his sights are set there, and the text tells us when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The, the word set his face, the, the, the meaning there is of a very steadfast, uh, a, a, stern, a, a stern face, a fixed face, a, a stubborn determination. I'm going to Jerusalem and no one's going to stop me. He has a mission. The Son of Man must suffer, must die. It's going to happen at Jerusalem. That's chapter 9. And then, Throughout that journey from chapter 9 all the way to here where we are, chapter 19, he keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. And now here he is. Here's Jerusalem. He's there. He's arrived. Ten chapters later, Jesus has come to the outskirts of the city, and uh, it's the week of Passover. You can picture the city crammed with people, hundreds of thousands of people. Every room is booked, the streets are crowded, uh, and, and there's, a, there's an air of, of excitement and anticipation 
that's always there when the Passover is there, but there's something extra this time. People are, people are talking about what Christ has been doing, all these signs he's been doing. And Jesus knows now is the time appointed for him to push events to their climax. He's going to reveal himself in this, in this, uh, this era of uh, anticipation and, and uh, excitement in Jerusalem. He's going to reveal himself in the wide open as the Christ and as the King. What kind of a king? First thing we see as we look at the text is Jesus reveals himself as the king to the Jews here. What kind of a king is he? The first thing we see is that he is a divine king. Not just a human king. Not not just a man, but he's actually the divine king. He is God himself come to his people. The story starts with an interesting detail. Jesus comes to the outskirts of the city and... um, He's by the villages of Bethany and Bethphage, the text tells us. And he sends two disciples ahead of him into one of the villages to go get a, go, go get a donkey and bring the donkey back to him. But, but why, why does Luke include this, this little account here of Jesus sending the disciples, go get this donkey and bring it back? Why does he give us all these details about how Jesus tells them exactly where the donkey's going to be, exactly what those who... Uh, see him, see them taking this donkey. Are going to say, why, "Why does Jesus do this, and why does Luke include this for us here?" I think it's to show us that only someone who knows all things could do this. Only someone who's God Himself could do this. It seems it might seem like a minor thing, but Jesus didn't send disciples ahead of time into the city to find out there was a cult, come back and tell them there was a cult, and then send them to go get the cult. He, he knew ahead of time just by virtue of of His godhood. His divine uh, nature. And that's what this is pointing us to here. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows every little detail. In fact, he ordained from before the foundation of the world that that donkey would be there at that moment for his disciples to go find and bring to him. The fact that Jesus is highlighting that he is God here is further, uh, further highlighted when what, in what he tells the disciples to say to those who ask them about what they're doing. So they go, the disciples go, they untie this donkey. It seems like it's the owner or someone who knows him. They say, what are you doing untying that donkey? Uh, they say, well, the Lord has need of it. The Lord, of course, could just be a title of respect, just like, our, like our title, like our word, sir. Um, but when it's used like that, the Lord... It is referring to none other than God. This is how the Jews translated the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, from the Old Testament into, into Greek with the word kurios, Lord. And Jesus says, tell them, when they ask you, why are you doing this? Who needs that donkey? You tell them, the Lord, Yahweh, needs it. Jesus is saying, I'm the covenant Lord, and I am going to come to my own people. He is God himself. He is God Almighty and Covenant Lord, coming to His own city. He's coming to His own temple, which exists for Him, exists for His glory. And He, he is coming as the Lord of glory, ascending to His throne in Jerusalem, visiting His people in salvation and in judgment. Are they going to receive Him? Here comes the Lord, Yahweh Himself, Not only does he come as Yahweh, God himself, he comes also as the promised Messiah and King. This is the second 
thing about Christ's kingship, the text shows us, not only is he the divine king, he's also the Davidic king, son of David, the, the Messiah. Jesus is, uh, as, he, as he's arranged this whole, this, whole, uh, this whole situation here, he's arranged it to fulfill a prophecy in the Old Testament that was pointing forward to this very thing. Um, as, as the Jews see Jesus coming into the city, riding on this donkey, what would immediately come to their minds, of course, would be the words of the prophet Zechariah. Say this, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. That's, that's the prophecy in Zechariah. Your king, the Messiah, is going to come riding on a donkey. Jesus says, bring me a donkey. I'm the Christ, the king. I'm going to ride in, and everyone's going to know exactly what I'm saying, what I'm claiming. So he does. He rides in. And they do. They respond. The people, the people respond to Christ. They see this, and they recognize what he's doing, what he's saying about himself. So all his disciples come, and it's not just a few of his disciples. Luke uh, 19, verse 37, describes it as the whole multitude. It's a great crowd of disciples coming to see Christ, rushing out to meet him. You can picture the scene, hundreds, maybe more, of, of those who've been following Christ. Uh, right? they, they, they hear that Christ is coming, and the word starts to spread through the crowded streets of Jerusalem. The King, Christ, is coming. He's here. He's announcing himself as the Messiah. Come out to see him. And uh, people are rushing out outside the city to where Christ is coming down the Mount of Olives. They, they throw their cloaks down on the road before him. Uh, so the donkey won't have to ride through the, the mud, right? The sign of, of this is the king, we're going to honor him. Their minds are filled with all the wonderful works God has done, all the things Christ has done that they've seen, the miracles he's performed. And they sing the words of Psalm 118, which we read earlier this morning. Um, they, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are hailing Christ as the great triumphant king who's come to reign as the Messiah. And Jesus owns it. He welcomes it. He says, yes, this is exactly who I am. I am the, the Messiah, the king, coming to my own city uh, and to, to reign. They own him as their king. What about us loved ones? Who is Christ? What do we believe about who Jesus is? Two things we've seen so far. He's the divine king and he's the the, the, the Davidic king? Do we bow to him as such? As, as the Lord? As God himself, Lord of glory, who comes to us with all the authority of God himself? We cannot respond to Christ with, uh, with neutrality. He demands our love. He demands your allegiance. Um, he, he doesn't just want a, a little bit here, a little bit there, a piece of your life, but he wants the whole of your life. Offered up to him, surrendered to him, laid down at his feet. It's what he's owed. He's the king. So Jesus reveals his glorious kingship here. His divine kingship. His messianic kingship. But there's more we also need to see. Even as Jesus is coming in this way, revealing himself as divine and as Messiah and demanding allegiance and worship, from Jerusalem and from everyone, he also reveals himself strikingly as the humble king. He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He doesn't come on a war horse. 
He doesn't come on an armored chariot riding in, right, with this great parade, this military parade. Right? He, he has all power, all authority, all this glory, all this, all this, all this kingly uh, excellence and worth. But he comes in just riding on a gentle donkey. What would you do if you had all power and authority? Would you humble yourself? Would you get down and, 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 and serve and, and humble yourself and suffer for others? That's what Christ does. If anyone had the right to enter Jerusalem with glory and power, it was Jesus, but he comes humbly to Jerusalem. This is exactly what the Lord prophesied through Zechariah. We already read this. Zechariah 9 9. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's not coming in uh, the big presidential motorcade with the big SUV or the big limousine. He's coming in the minivan, as it were, right? That, that humble transportation, the everyman's transportation. He's coming humbly to his people. He hasn't come to conquer. Not this time. Right? He's, not, he's not here to bring war against His people. Not this time. He's coming to lay His life down for them. This is the kind of king that you want. The kind of king that you think you need. Some people look at a gentle king like Christ. And they say, well, that's, that's not what I want. I don't need a humble king. Or I need a great king. I'm, I'm worthy of a Savior who does come in with a great army and with fanfare and with glory. Um, I'm, I'm worthy of a Savior on a war horse. Not a Savior on a donkey. Right? What, what, does it say about, what does it say about us, loved ones, if the kind of Savior that we need does not appear in, in, in great power and glory but comes humbly? Right? It means that we are humble. Uh, that, our, that our need is, is humble. Uh, that we are lowly ourselves. His, as Jesus comes humbly like this, he's telling us that, uh, that, 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 um, that, that we ourselves are, are, are not worthy of a great and glorious salvation. We're, we're worthy of a Savior who comes gently, humbly. This is the one that we need. It tells us how gracious the Lord is that he came to do this for us. This is the Savior we need, isn't it, loved ones? If he comes in... <coughs> In, uh, on a war horse. What hope do we have? All right, if he comes in in judgment like that, what hope do I have? If he's the conquering king, then I'm getting conquered and I'm getting killed by his wrath because I'm not faithful to him. I'm a sinner as, as you are. Our hope is that he is this humble, lowly Savior who comes to bring salvation to sinners. He's actually coming in to lay his life down for our sakes. As we see Christ like this, loved ones, we've seen His glory, His divine nature as our King, He's his, uh, his the Messiah King as well. And as we see Him also humble, I hope, I hope that as you see Him like that, in both those things together at the same time, in His glory and His humility for you, His power and His gentleness towards sinners, that you do love Him. Um, and you think to yourself, who wouldn't welcome such a king, right? Who comes in all his glory and his might to lay down his life to save me from my sins? Who wouldn't welcome such a king and, and sing praises to such a king? Who wouldn't think it beneath him to stoop down to save me? But among the crowds there, there are many who don't welcome him. They're there to oppose him. Uh, many of those who have streamed out of the gates of the city to come see Christ are there because they hate him. 
not because they love him. The Pharisees come and they, they demand that, uh, that, that Jesus tell the disciples to be quiet. They say, make your disciples be quiet. You're not the Messiah. Stop them from saying that you are. But Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who are saying this. He says, I tell you, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. His words must have stunned the Pharisees, right? They're saying, who do you think you are, Jesus? Right? The very rocks and stones of the natural world would cry out and praise to you. That only happens when, when God comes to save his people, as we read in Isaiah the prophecy there, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That happens when the Christ comes in all his glory and, uh, and God saves his people and restores his people. That's when the natural world cries out in song and praise to him. Who do you think you are, Jesus? But Jesus, of course, says that's exactly who I am. Everything in his kingdom, he's saying, everything in Jerusalem is mine. This very rocks of the city belong to me. And if the disciples don't praise me, they'll break out in singing. And so, loved ones, this is how Christ comes in to Jerusalem. This journey he's been on since Luke chapter 9. He comes into Jerusalem. The divine king, God himself, covenant Lord, son of David, the Messiah, humble, gentle with sinners. He comes to the city. And you'd expect, right, the city... He's going to welcome him, besides these few sour Pharisees outside the city who are just jealous. Right? Isn't the city itself going to throw open its doors and welcome him? It's what should happen. But in the midst of this scene, Jesus, uh, we see, comes around, the, seems to come around a band, or the, the city comes into view, Jerusalem comes into view. And what does Jesus do as he sees it? Right? He sees the, the, the architecture, the towers, the, 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 the buildings, the crowds, the gleaming temple mount. And he sees God's chosen people and they're gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, which has been pointing to him for thousands of years. And they, they see all these things. And we expect that at this moment, the city gates are going to get flung open and people are going to welcome him into the city. It's Psalm 118 which Jesus right, is fulfilling and the people are singing this psalm. Psalm 118 actually tells us the gates of righteousness will be flung open to welcome in the king. It's what Jesus should expect, that, that he's going to go up to the temple in a royal processional. Right? 118, psalm 118, 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Do the gates open to him? Psalm 118:26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord from the temple. Does it happen? But all the, all the, all the, the singing, the, 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 excla- the exclamations of joy and, and thankfulness and praise to Christ disappear in verse 41, which says this, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. But instead of Christ coming into view of the city and he rejoices and the city rejoices in him, he sees the city and he weeps. He sees the city and, and he, 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 he grieves, he cries. A few welcome him, right? His disciples, crowds of them, yes, but the city as, as a whole just ignores Christ. What use do we have for this kind of a Christ, they say? Jesus says, verse 42, if you had known, even you especially, in this your day, right? This is the day of salvation, Israel. Your Christ is here. God is here. And you are just blind to see it. 
He says this would be the day of your peace. The word peace is built right into this, the name of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, peace, the city of peace. But, but they have rejected the Prince of Peace and they will not receive any of God's peace. They won't see him. They've shut their eyes against him. And now Christ says, here's a, here's a judgment on you for that. Now you won't be able to see. You won't actually even have the ability to open your eyes to see. God has given them over to their sin. And they cannot see now. God, as it were, takes the break off uh, their sin and, and lets them slide further and further into it. There's a warning here for us, loved ones, in Christ's words to the city of Jerusalem um, as he grieves over them. It's, it's very possible to belong to the visible people of God and uh, to be looked upon as religious and to, convince, to be convinced in yourself. If anyone belongs to the kingdom of God, surely I belong. And yet to have your eyes blinded to who Christ is, to not really understand who he is or understand what he came to do or why it should matter to you. and Not, not to really love him, trust him, or, or follow him. We see this illustrated in the context so, so powerfully. These two responses to Christ, uh, uh, the one whom God has hardened and the other whom God has softened to Christ. Um, in the context here, just a few verses before, we see, uh, um, we see, of course, the Pharisees. They don't see Christ for who he is. They shut their eyes against him. They tell him to rebuke his disciples. We don't recognize you as the Messiah. That's how many respond to him. But if you go back a little further, back into chapter 18, at the end of that chapter, which is just the chapter before the one we're in, you see as Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, a blind man, right? He's blind physically, but he's not blind spiritually. God has opened his eyes spiritually. And this blind beggar hears that Jesus is passing by and he cries out. He recognizes he's the Messiah. He knows he's the king and he knows what kind of a king he is. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's telling him to be quiet. He's bothering them. They rebuke him, even as the Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke his disciples. But this blind man cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Let me recover my sight. The blind man whom God has worked in knows. He sees who Christ is. And Christ, of course, opens his eyes. But what these two reactions to Christ are showing us that, that uh, we, we need, we're going to be one or the other. And Jesus is, is saying, be like the blind man who, who cries out to me. That should, that should be your attitude to Christ. Desperate need. I need you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are my king, and I need the salvation that only you can give. Right? Clamoring for Christ. Till a point when other people tell you to be quiet, because you're so desperate for him, because you need him. This is how we should respond. But it's not how Jerusalem responds. And so Jesus prophesies their judgment in verses 43 to 44. The city is going to be leveled. It's going to be raised to the ground, destroyed. It's going to be like a repeat of the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, but it's going to be worse. God himself came to you, Jerusalem. You ignored him. It's the day of your visitation. God himself came and you shut the door and would have none of him. And you're going to face his wrath. You're going to face his judgment for it. And that's going to happen. Forty years on, the Romans are going to come, besiege the city, and Jerusalem will fall because they rejected the Messiah. 
And Jesus is going, he, after he speaks this word of, of wrath and judgment for Jerusalem, then he's going to go on to, into the temple itself, and he's going to foreshadow that judgment as he drives out the money changers and the idolaters from the temple. And he's, he's, as he does it, he's fulfilling the text we read earlier, Malachi chapter 3. He's bringing purification. He's bringing cleansing. But as he does it, 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 it both burns away the dross, even as it refines the silver. As he does this, the question is, how, how are the people of God cleansed? Right? God is coming to his people. They're rejecting him. How, how, does, how, does he, how does God still show grace and mercy and kindness and save a remnant for himself out of that? Well, the answer lies in what Jesus' mission has been all along. As, as he comes up to the temple, um, what, what's, his, what's his goal been the whole time? This journey from Luke 9 to chapter 19. Well, it's, 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 uh, we see it in, in Psalm 118 again, actually. Um, at the, towards the end of Psalm 118, verse 27 says, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So there are the Old Testament. You have this psalm about the victory of God and the king and this great triumphant celebration of that. And in the midst of all that celebration, you have a sacrifice being bound, a lamb being bound and taken up to the altar and slaughtered on the altar and blood being spilled and, and then the lamb being burned. What's the significance of that? Well, God, God is saying, this is the way my salvation comes to sinners, to my, to my sinful people. A sacrifice is made. Atonement is made. And that's, Christ is saying, that's me. I'm the sacrifice being bound and brought up to the altar. I'm going to lay myself down there. I'm going to lay myself down willingly for my people so that I can save them, that God would pour out His wrath on me and then cleanse my people of their sin forever so that those even of His people who deserve wrath but yet seek Christ and have faith in Christ might receive grace. How do all the people respond? We've seen this, but we see it again as the chapter ends. Verse 47, we see one response to him. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Some people see this Christ, the divine Christ, this kingly Christ who comes and make these demands on us. It centers all, everything on himself and demands that we love him and follow him. Some people see that and they hate it. How dare you demand that of me? Some people see it and, and they, they, they see Christ. They see the humble Christ and they despise that. That's not what I deserve. I deserve something grander than that. That's the way the Pharisees respond. But then there's another response, verse 48. All the people were very attentive to hear him. Or as another translation has it, the people were hanging on his words. As you see Christ, which response is yours? Do you hang on His words? Are you seeking to understand Him better and learn more about Him and love Him and, and, and trust Him and follow Him? Do you see he, as He is the divine King, the, 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 the Messiah King, the humble King, that He demands your allegiance and obedience, even as He is the sacrifice for your sins? That's the Christ we are to believe in. That's the true Christ that we see in the pages of Scripture, and He's the one who can save us. So hang on His words and trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank You for the clear picture we have of such a glorious Savior who's so mighty in power and also so humble and gentle with us sinners. 
We thank You that He came to be bound and led up to the altar as our sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. We pray that You would make us, by Your Spirit, to have hearts that hunger after Christ and clamor for Christ and hang on His every word. And You'd teach us to follow Him more faithfully and to submit to Him more, more, more consistently with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. All this we ask for His sake. Amen.